Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 303 of the Mom Hour. I am Sarah Powers, here as always with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm really good. We are taking listener questions today. One of our favorite things to do. So I'm excited about this. Yes, we love doing these episodes. Um, and we usually do two, one after the other. And people send us questions about like all kinds of things. And I'm really excited about this one because we got some really different questions. Um, and we, we're always happy to answer, you know, we know there's certain questions that plague moms. Yes. Um, Till from the beginning of time and will to the end of time. And we're always happy to revisit those. But I felt like we got an, a, an interesting mix this time around of some that we really haven't heard before. So I'm excited I agree. About that. I agree. It was a nice smattering. Um, and if you check the show notes, we will link to our entire archive of listener questions. We also have a Spotify playlist of all of our listener questions episodes. Um, it's If you're a brand new listener, it's a fun way to get to know us and our conversation style and some of like the quirks of our own parenting experience, because by you all bringing your questions to us, we end up talking about a lot of topics within a relatively shorter period of time. So yeah, you're right, Megan, we're going to do this episode this Tuesday. And then next week, another round of questions. We usually take four or five and um, you can send them into us by email. Hello at the momhour.com. Or we have a little way to leave a voicemail, um, which is fun too. So you'll hear some actual voicemails today. It'll be fun. Yeah. So since it's going to be another like three months till we do the next round of these, if you've been wondering whether you should have a third baby or whether you've been wondering <laughs> whether you should potty train it too, or wait till hold two back and a half, your kindergartner, like, yeah. hold back your kindergartner. If you're wondering, and we're, we're laughing in like the most like, well, good natured way, because those are all questions that we struggled with, but they're so universal. We've answered yeah. them several times. And, and I think every time we answer similar questions, we have something slightly new to bring to the table. So um, it's definitely worth digging back those through those archives. Also want to remind everybody that Sarah put together a survey for us. She does every, I mean, I would say we, but you know, let's face it. Sarah does most of the work. Um, (laughs) I just look at it and go, why did you word it like that, Sarah? (laughs) Why don't you put that comment? Why don't you put that comment in a different place? So anyway, we do a survey and it's really important because it really helps us to understand um, not only like what content you want to hear and maybe don't want to hear. And we'd like it when people are honest, um, but also it helps us in our work with sponsors because they often want to know about you and like what, you know, we make decisions about what sponsors we're going to have on the show based on what life stages y'all are in. Yeah. Said it again, y'all, I'm y'all turning into a Southerner use guys, whatever stages you guys are in, that helps us to know um, kind of what sponsors would be great to bring to you. So it's really, really helpful to do that. It is. Thank you so much. You can type in the momhour.com slash survey on any browser or right where you're listening right now. There's a link in your show notes. Um, and it, it's an easy survey to do on your phone. You don't have to wait till you have 
that precious computer time later. Just do it on your phone (laughs) and we appreciate it. So thank you. Sarah, we both know this time of year can be crazy. So this is a great time to get ahead with no prep, no mess meals from our sponsor, Factor. I love how these meals are ready to eat and delivered right to your door. I mean, you can't beat that convenience, but most importantly, they're seriously delicious. Yeah, Megan, I agree. Our whole family was impressed with the quality and flavor of Factor meals we tried. And it turned out to be a great option for my teenagers when they got home late from a theater practice or came home from school super hungry. There's zero prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Factor meals just need to be heated for about two minutes and they're ready to go. Yeah, and for any listeners with wellness goals this month, Factor has six menu preferences to support your lifestyle, whether you're trying to boost your protein, avoiding meat, or simply focusing on well-balanced meals. And you can pause or reschedule deliveries to fit your lifestyle. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. Head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour50 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, Megan. Well, over here at the Mom Hour, we are big fans of our sponsor, Our Place. In fact, you, me, and our team member, Katie, were all comparing notes on our favorite product. Katie was telling us that even though she's packing up to move her family to a new house, she cannot put that mini perfect pot from Our Place into the boxes yet because she's using it like every night. Well, as someone who also has a perfect pot, I got mine as part of their mini home cook duo set. I get it. It's nonstick, which is key, but it also has all these handy features like a steam release lid with a built-in strainer and this nice beechwood spoon that nests on the handle in this perfect little peg. Okay, well, I didn't get this pot, but now I want it. That sounds so great. Our Place's cookware is great to cook with, beautiful to look at, and healthier for us as well. All of Our Place's products are made without PFAS, also known as Forever Chemicals. In addition to their cookware and tableware, Our Place is also making waves with their Wonder Oven, the most stylish all-in-one air fryer and toaster oven. Again, free from the forever chemicals found in many of those air fryers. Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to fromourplace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site-wide. That's from our O-U-R place.com code mom hour. Okay, so let's dive into Madison's question. She sent us this actually around the holidays when she was doing a small family gathering. Um, and she said, recently we were with my husband's parents and siblings. His sister, who is 22, mentioned that she and her friends were using drugs just for fun together sometimes. Obviously, we are very concerned for her, but I am not responsible for her. I am responsible for my kids and what they are exposed to. I'm not trying to be super judgmental and holier than thou, but how do we handle what our kids are exposed to even just with our family? I know they'll be exposed to the things of the world at some point, but I don't think it should be now. And her kids are four and one. So she asks, have you ever had relatives that were open about sharing things around your kids that you were not okay with them learning? And how did you handle it? So my interpretation here is that um, Madison's mostly talking about the subject matter itself, not the behavior, or it could be, you could substitute swearing or like right. dirty jokes or um, basically yeah. like a, adult level conversations spoken freely with young kids around. And she did mention that her four-year-old listens to and picks up on everything. So it's not just like a baby. Um, it's like, yeah. it reminds me of that classic, like earmuffs member from, yes. um, like, you know, like yes. earmuffs. earmuffs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So what do well, you think? So it is hard. And I've been in this position, um, having kids that kind of fell in the middle between, you know, being on the younger side of some cousins and the older side of others. And sometimes my kids are the, have probably been the, <laughs> have been the mm-hmm. aggressors and probably at points in my life, I've been the aggressor in these situations. So I think that first of all, you know, 22 is an age where I'm sure um, your husband's sister is not very clued into who's listening or mm-hmm. even their comprehension level. Like if you've got a baby and a young preschooler in her mind, it's like maybe babies at the table who aren't paying attention. So right. like almost like remove the drug use from it and go, what else? Like what if she had just like busted out with a word you don't want your kids to hear or something like that? And I think it, it's like two approaches. One is um, like in the moment redirecting, 
Mm-hmm. And then the other one is like damage control. And I guess I would, I would employ them both depending, or maybe just one or the other, depending on like the company and what was said. So I've definitely been in situations before where there have been young adults or teenagers who've said things in front of my kids. I didn't want them to hear. And I have like made a pointed look and been like, Hey, like, think about who's in the room or like right. little, little teapots or have mm-hmm. big ears, you know, like <laughs> things like that. And I think sometimes that quick redirect in the moment takes care of the problem. Cause then that person's like, Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, oops, I really like stepped over a boundary. Um, and then if you're really concerned of it being something like that, your four-year-old say was really listening deeply picked up on and now is curious about then after that, you got to do some of your own damage control on your own time. Sure. And I just think that some of that is like inevitable as your kids get older, they're listening and there's going to be times that you're like in public transportation when that's a thing again. I don't remember if anybody, you know, if anyone remembers (laughs) that or not, but you're going to be out with your kids at a restaurant. You're going to be at the beach. I was at the beach not long ago and there were a bunch of people smoking pot right next to us, like on the beach because apparently you can just do that anywhere now. And I literally stood up and I said, I guess you could just do that anywhere now. And I like looked over <laughs> at them and like pointed at my kids like, hello. And, you know, it was a bunch of young people and they're all just like, oh, dur, dur, dur. I have I've had it on a train before where people that I don't know and have no control over are just being loud and obnoxious and swearing and saying like really inappropriate stuff. And my kids are, you know, one or two um, seats away. And I have no problem giving them the stink eye, but that doesn't mean they're going to stop. So it's like, there's that too. If I feel like they heard something they shouldn't have heard, I can sort of express later. Like, what did you hear? Was that, are you, do you have questions? Um, did you find that upsetting? Were they paying attention? Like that, those are all things you can find out. If it were me, unless it was like a long extended conversation where it just kept going and the sister never picked up on your cues to stop, I probably wouldn't say anything to her unless it was like an ongoing problem, but I right. might, I guess it just depends. I don't know, Sarah, yeah. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, no, I think this is so interesting. And I think what I picked up on from Madison's email is like, she kind of knew that the examples you're giving, like the train and the beach and the, like the real world is going to come in at some point, And she knows she can't shelter them from that forever. But like, what about when it's your own family and they're still right. so little? So a couple of thoughts. Um, I've dealt with this more actually with adults wanting to discuss the news or scary things happening in the world. And I have a couple of anxious kids and all of my kids like adult conversation and will listen. So they are not like off. I mean, sometimes they're off doing their own thing, but often they are right among us. And I have um, just like said something before we go into a mixed group dynamic and be like, hey, and I, I, tr- I always try to frame it as it's not um, I'm not saying anyone's doing anything wrong or that it, that I try to make it about my kids. Like I almost take the blame yeah. a little bit, be like, hey, you know, so and so is extra anxious. And we've been really struggling at bedtime because they've been hearing like scary stories from the news about school shootings or whatever. So like, let's just not let's just not go there when the kids are in the room. And most of the time they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so right. I didn't even think about that. I, I think you're you were so right to point out that adults often who aren't around children a lot have a very, they don't remember what ages are appropriate for understanding something when the kids might be paying attention, what might be inappropriate. And I've also had actually the, the opposite, which I've had like someone drop a swear and then look at me and be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. The kids are here. And I'm like, (laughs) I I don't care about that at all. Like they've heard. So it, you know, I think in many families, people want to do what's best. And I think you can provide very respectful boundaries ahead of time, especially if you frame it as something that is your problem, not theirs. Being like, hey, you know, little Joey just is listening to every word we say. And they, he's asking so many questions lately. So just FYI that like everything you say is going to be listened to in detail. And and that probably is enough. And, and you're not saying I'm judging your lifestyle because you swear or, you know, hang out with right. a rough crowd. I'm just saying that my <laughs> kid, <laughs> my kid will be listening to everything you say. And often I think it's just, they don't even realize. And then I think my final thought is if it's a repeated thing, um, I, I'm a big fan of just like circumventing the whole 
the whole thing by maybe setting up a movie or something for the kids in the other room. If you know, it's a matchup, like there's the one uncle who's always going to tell dirty jokes and like, it's, you can't avoid it. So you just plan for that and you plan to have a movie on in the next room or, you know, and then the final thing, I think I already said final thing, but the final, final thing is that a a curious four-year-old will probably listen to everything but a lot will still probably go over. They his won't or her absorb head. it all. They won't. Right. So, so I, what I think is great here is Madison's ears perked up when she heard the story being told that was not for little ears. She was like, "Okay," but I'm guessing that a one time, a one time occurrence is not, you know, hasn't really infiltrated the brain of the four year old most likely. But it's smart to be on the lookout for it and to to know what to say next time or how to redirect next time. So, yeah. Agreed. And Sarah, this is cracking me up because I was just thinking when you were talking about this, I have a very clear memory of sitting on your parents' patio one night at dusk, having a conversation about something kind of, it was like semi-political. I don't remember. I don't remember what it was. We're all talking like adults. And I said something, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was about like abuse in the Catholic church or something. I mean, it was something like super, like something super off the wall. And I look over and there's Allegra's like, Oh yeah. She was, she had made herself silent. She had made herself invisible to me. Yeah. Like (laughs) I knew she was there, but she just kind of slunk up and listened. And I look over and there's these big, yeah. There's these big Allegra giant eyes eyes staring at me. And I was like, Oh, uh, derp. And and I felt (laughs) like for a minute, like I lost track of myself because I wasn't in my home environment. I wasn't around my kids right? and I wasn't really, frankly, paying attention to your kids because they're not my kids. You know what I mean? I wasn't like, it wasn't on my radar. And then I was like, Oh, whoops. But they, she really was like a silent observer. Um, and I think that that isn't always something that other people are looking out for, even if they have experience with kids that might not be their experience of kids. So like it happens and, it, and it's different if it's a pattern, like you said, with, you know, Uncle Bob, who won't stop yeah. bringing up dirty jokes or whatever. That's one thing. If you tried to have the conversation and it doesn't go anywhere, that's one thing. But I do think that, like, if it's a one off thing, it probably was less of a big deal. Right. Than it maybe seemed like. Right. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And and it's funny, the things that are triggering in different families for different reasons. So for us, it has been way less about, like, appropriate behavior or anything like that. But there are some themes of news, like actual news stories. You know, I mentioned school shootings, like things like that, that a couple of my kids like would be genuine. It would, it would really mess with their, I would have a lot of questions to answer later. They'd be worried about it. They'd be, and it's not worth it. So in those cases, I would say something ahead of time be like, Hey, this topic's off limits. I know it's big in the news right now, but it's traumatizing my kids. So don't bring it up. And I feel comfortable nicely saying that in most of my family circles. So yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to Sarah, who left us a voicemail about a four-year-old perfectionist. So here's Sarah's message. Hi, Sarah and Megan. My name is Sarah, and I'm from Maryland. I love the podcast. Thank you guys so much. I have a question for you today about my daughter, who just recently turned four about two months ago. She is becoming kind of a perfectionist, and um, she's really hard on herself. And I'm trying to figure out if this is something I should be concerned about and reaching out for support, um, maybe through my doctor or someone else, or if this is normal four-year-old behavior and more of a phase. Um, I just am hope, looking to see if I should be concerned and if this is indicative of a bigger problem down the road. Um, but if she writes a five instead of an S, or if she colors outside of the lines when she's coloring in a picture, she like loses it. She just doesn't cope with that mistake very well. And she'll either scribble out the picture and crumple it up and throw it away or have a breakdown. Um, and so we've been reassuring and we tell her that we love it and it's okay. And we all make mistakes and she just really doesn't want to hear it. I'm trying to figure out, um, how to give her coping mechanisms and if this is normal and a phase or if I should be more concerned. Thanks. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I have a real perfectionist in Violet in, in certain ways, especially like you're saying, Sarah, with uh, writing and art. And the problem, the challenge for Violet is she's the youngest of three. 
So not only I think is she hardwired with some of those tendencies, but she also was constantly comparing her drawings and her writing to her older siblings. So when when Sarah described the crumpling up and the throwing it away and just the kind of like not even be willing to like try again or listen, the just like you call it rage quitting with Owen and games. It's like it's (laughs) rage quitting, but instead of a game, it's a it's some kind of effort. So I have a lot of experience. I'll rattle off a few tips, but I actually wanted to start with something Sarah asked. She, she asked, she framed her question as, is this within the range of normal or something I should be worried about or thinking about? And what's so funny, Megan, is so many of the questions we get, and even my own parenting questions that I have about my own kids, that's what we're really asking, right? We're like, right. is this developmentally normal? And I, this is just the phase we're in, or should I be doing something about it? And I wanted to actually address that first, because I think we can apply that question to like a hundred different topics. Um, so I'm going to use a gardening metaphor, which I know is not original. It's very cliche, but like we were talking on Sunday's more than mom episode about our excitement for gardening again. And like, if you start little seedlings or you plant a seed, you're going to do all the things you know to do to like get the the environment as, as right as you can. You know, you're going to water, you're going to put it in the sun, you're going to follow the package instructions you are not really going to know if the things that you're doing are helping or hurting or or almost like they're irrelevant because the plant's going to do well no matter what or the plant's going to not do well no matter what. And it's really hard right. to know till you have a little bit more information till the plant starts to grow. So I know that's kind of cheesy, but with a lot of these developmental questions, when she's asking, is this normal? I would say, yep, it sounds pretty. It sounds like it's a personality trait of your four-year-old that sounds within the range of normal, but it doesn't mean you're not going to like, hmm, maybe this plant needs a little more sun or maybe yeah. it didn't like yeah. how much water I gave it. So you're going to try. It's like yes and, right? Yes it's, and. It's, like it's, Yes and, you're right. It's you're normal gonna, and. <laughs> and you're going to keep tweaking that environment to see if you can get the little plant to thrive. And in the meantime, the the plant's going to thrive if it's going to thrive. And, and like, your the things you're doing can help, but if you have a perfectionist, you have a perfectionist, and there are many kids like that out there. So it's like yes, within the range of normal, and there are probably some things you can think about. So that's kind of where I'll go into my um, tips. Uh, so for Violet, I know that talking to her about it in the moment was useless. So me saying things like, "Oh, but your drawing was really good. I'm sorry that you threw that away," or like oh, look, you've made so much improvement from last time. Or, oh, you know, it's normal for a five-year-old to mix up fives and S's. Like, none of that. It doesn't matter, like, what parenting book that it was pulled from. None of the talking about it helped. Um, And that was maybe just a personality thing. She was not interested in hearing that because in her mind, she sucked, right? Like, that picture mm-hmm. sucked. It didn't turn out how she planned. She was crumpling. She was throwing it away. She was stomping off. Um. So a few things that I tried to do over time. One is to model being bad at things and like do the thing where you kind of narrate, be like, wow, like I tried this yoga class today and I fell down because it was so hard and I was like really embarrassed. Um, But, you know, that's okay. It was like it was okay. I liked it anyway. And point out with your other kids or your husband or your partner, whoever, like point out real world examples of people not being good at something and like kind of moving on. They don't have to like love not being good at it, but it's just like, it's a part of being human. And I think modeling it and talking about it with other people or like watch that baby, like get up and fall down. Like he's trying so hard to learn to walk. And so I think normalizing, um, not being good at things, you can take it away from the immediate situation, but have that be like kids like that may need to see more real world examples of people not being good at things, trying and failing and trying Mm. again. Um, I also think for Violet, one thing that helped was giving her tasks where she really could be good at stuff because she was the youngest and she was so often behind and not as good as her siblings. I had to really manufacture opportunities for her to be good. Now, I think, you know, you, if you did that in the extreme, you'd never have a kid who struggles or who, who, you know, experiences (laughs) failure. I'm not talking about that. Like there's plenty of opportunities for most kids to feel not proficient. I had to find ways for her actually to feel a little bit of mastery to get that confidence. Sometimes it's pairing it up with a younger kid. Like if you have a cousin or a sibling to be like, hey, can you help show, you know, Sydney how to draw a 
person because she's only three and she doesn't even know how to make a stick figure. So you can put them in a position of teaching, which I think is, um, I think some kids really like that. You can even have her teach you something. Um, but anytime you can put her in a position where she already feels confident and then she gets to kind of teach or show that off, I think is helpful. And you, and you have to, sometimes you have to manufacture that. I did with Violet because she was the youngest in a family of five. So she was always the least experienced at everything. And it was really hard for her and it still is, but it's a lot better. Um, and then the, the final thing I would say is I can't remember in Sarah's message if she said she's in preschool. I think she is. Um, but definitely talk to a teacher about this. It doesn't have to be a big deal. like a big, serious conference, but teachers are really used to this. And they remember that teachers have taught hundreds of kids and they've seen lots of little perfectionists and they've ha- they have professional training. So if you clue a teacher in, they can probably be doing things in the classroom, just little things about the way they, the way they speak to the child and the feedback they give. Again, I'm not saying we're trying to protect a perfectionist kid from criticism at all, but that age is really hard. The world is really hard when you're four. It really is hard yeah. to remember yeah. an S from a five. Like that sucks. <laughs> so I, I'm not saying we paved the way so they don't experience that, but I think there are little things you can do so that she starts to feel the confidence and then just wait it out because Violet got a lot, a lot better with time. So there you go. Yeah. Um, that's all great advice. I would add to that, that my little perfectionist doesn't look like a rage quitter. And I'm talking mm. about Clara. Um, she just won't try. Mm, and yes. the way that plays out often, I think she probably thinks she's tried or maybe she's given something kind of like a private um, half attempt, mm-hmm. but then decided for whatever reason she wasn't good at it. Or sometimes she just thinks ahead of time, she's not going to be good at something. So it's like a perfectionism mixed with like a lack of confidence or a, a anxiety worry thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, she's 11 and I'm still having to kind of do a lot of the things that you're talking about, but like slightly differently because I'm not, it's not that she's trying and failing. It's that she's already pre, she's just yeah. pre-decided it's not going to be the way she wants it to be. And then even when she does do something that I think is great, she finds a way to criticize or tear it down. So that, I mean, it's been, it, it's like a long like, because kids like that are also very sensitive to insincerity. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if like, especially the older they get, if I start to praise something that Clara does not believe is praiseworthy, I have lost all credibility with her. So like, I have to find ways to kind of praise the effort or the bravery yeah. or the courage. And, and I think that can look a little bit different with kids who are willing to try, but then flip out because it didn't go the way they want. It's the same symptom, you know what I mean? But yeah. like, or sorry, it's the same cause, but a different it's like a different symptom. And yeah. uh, I just was thinking like Clara finally. So she's been wanting to get her hair cut for like a, over a year now and has chickened out a couple of times. And I have to just have the, the faith that eventually when she's ready, she's going to do it. So like mm-hmm. keep encouraging every time we've talked about it. It's like, yes, that would be so cute on you. Yes. That'd be great. But then if, when she didn't do it, that's okay too. You weren't ready. Yeah. And then she, so she gets this adorable haircut. She came out and she was so thrilled and so happy. And then the next day she's like, I don't know though. You know, I think at school, like, I I don't know that anyone liked it. And I'm pretty sure people thought my bangs looked dumb and one kid made fun of me. And I just have to let some of that roll off my back because it's easy from the mom's side to take that so much to heart. Like you didn't do your job building them up somehow. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and so when she does that, I have to just say, is that true? Were there other people who's, who complimented you? I'm sure like everyone I've talked to said it was really cute. Like, I know that it's really cute. It is really cute. And you were really courageous to cut that much hair off. And it's like, there's a lot of that having to, to help her reframe the negative self-talk, mm-hmm. which is one of those parts of yeah. perfectionism um, that just looks a little different. Yep. And it will look different the, the way it, the way it manifests in a four-year-old, it'll look different when they're eight and nine mm-hmm. and 10 and 11. So totally. Yeah. It's a, it is a thing. It is a thing. It is developmentally yeah. normal and, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Did, I did a quick Google and I, I found a New York Times, a recent New York Times article with some research-based stuff about perfectionist kids. Um, and I know that there are some other great stuff. So sometimes I, I actually enjoy like trying to source some good evidence-based stuff. So I will link in the show notes to any expert stuff I find on 
perfectionists um, because I know it's enough of a thing, Sarah, that there are many books and articles written about it. So if that if nothing else, that should be some validation that it's it happens a lot. So, yeah. Okay, Megan, like many of our listeners, I'm sure I've been doing some spring cleaning in my closet lately, and it always feels so good to get rid of clothes I'm not wearing, things that don't fit or that aren't my style anymore. But you know what I realized? All of my Vionic shoes are always in the keep pile. They just tick all the boxes. They're cute, comfy, high quality. They last forever. And I love growing my Vionic collection, especially with the latest styles from their Vionic Vitals collection. The Vionic Vitals collection offers daily wear styles designed for elegance, comfort, and versatility. We both love the Uptown Loafer, which collapses flat, so it's perfect for travel. The Chardonnay Heeled Sandal, which I know you love, Sarah. The Walk 23 Classic Sneaker, which our team member Katie gets compliments on all the time. And the Willa Slip-On Flat, one of my favorites, which comes in 12 colors for any outfit. Yeah, I need to uh, get the Willa Slip-On Flat. That's next on my list. Well, listeners, if you're ready to try the shoes we're always raving about, use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at bionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's one-time use only. Bionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Sarah, our sponsor, Haya Health, makes a kid's daily multivitamin that parents can feel great about giving their kids because they have no added sugars or dyes. And our kids who have tried Haya Vitamins have loved them which is important, right? Because what good is a bottle of vitamins that your kid won't take? Haya was founded by two dads who didn't like the ingredients label on some of the popular children's vitamins they were seeing on store shelves. So they got to work developing a formula that would help fill the most common nutrient gaps in modern kids' diets. Haya's chewable kids' vitamin is made with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. They're also vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, and nut-free. Haya manufactures their vitamins right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, and then they ship their chewable vitamins directly to your door on a pediatrician recommended schedule. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You're going to get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash MomHour. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash mom hour and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Okay, so we're back and we're going to hear from Gina, um, who is struggling right now. And aren't we all right? So Mm -hmm. they felt this one I could so relate to. So let's listen to this message from Gina, who is struggling, frustrated, yelling at her kids. And I believe she says just losing it a lot right now. Hi, Megan and Sarah. This is Gina, and I'm calling from Arizona. I'm a mom of two. I have a three-year-old, three-major, and a nine-and-a-half-month-old. Um, and right now in this season, I am struggling. I'm really struggling, as we all are. Um, I'm a high school teacher, have been for eight years. And this year, I've had to pour so much more of myself into my work than I already do. Um, the energy that it takes to keep things running smoothly and to keep my kids at school feeling um, the least amount of stress possible and to keep everyone safe. Um, But by the time I leave work and I go and I pick up my kids from daycare, um, my energy is depleted and I know it is. And while I try and practice respectful parenting, um, I am becoming the mom that loses it, that loses her patience um, more than I ever thought that I would. My three-year-old will be, you know, throwing a tantrum at the door because she doesn't want to come inside. Um, Meanwhile, I've got my 22-pound baby on my hip and eight bags on the ground to carry in, and I have evening routine and dinner to get started. Um, And and it's just done. I'm yelling, and then at the end of the night, I'm I'm feeling this overwhelming sense of mom guilt and that I'm just not doing anything well enough. Um, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to manage that, that feeling of failure. Oh boy. Um, Gina, you are not alone. This is so common right now. And I could just tell from your voice that, you know, it took some courage to like leave a voicemail for podcasters you've never met, owning the fact that you're struggling and that you're not kind of like, you're not able to be the teacher and the mom that you want to be right now. And 
I, I went back and looked because I wanted to make sure this message wasn't like three months old because in pandemic times, as we've been discussing, like things change so much. So we're recording this in early March and the message was left about a month ago. Um, so I don't know how much has changed in Gina's world, um, but I guess I wanted to just sit here with this heartbreak and validate a little bit that it, it's so rampant right now for moms in particular, working parents everywhere to feel like there's nothing they can do to get, to get caught up, to get ahead, mm-hmm. to get the, the, like a self-care that they need. Like you're doing all the things and you're still just strapped or stra- stretched thin, excuse me, at the end of the day. Um, I think, I mean, I can't speak for teachers, but knowing what I know, I think the extra emotional labor and mental load on educators this year has been so ridiculous that it's like an, it's like a pandemic on top of a pandemic or something. Um, teachers and healthcare workers, of course. So I don't know, do I have advice? No, except to just know that you're not alone and, and your kids are going to be fine. You're one and three-year-old, or I think uh, the baby and the three-year-old are going to be just fine. The amount of mom that they're getting and the, and the quality of mom time that they're getting doesn't feel to you like what you want to be giving, but they're going to be okay. They really are. So I think if my advice, if I have any is to remove the, remove the guilt that you're somehow like messing up your kids or something. Um, because we have lots of time to rebuild and recover um, in the years ahead. And, and I just don't think any mom needs to carry that burden as well as everything else that you're somehow like not enough for your kids. So, yeah. Well, uh, yes, all of that. And while I was listening to this, I was thinking, oh my goodness, when my kids were that age, I regularly lost it. And, and I didn't even have those pressures. Like I was not going through a global pandemic. I had other pressures. And I think it's really important to remember that like at some point, most people um, during parenting, for whatever reason, are in a really unideal situation. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. because everybody around them is in a really unideal situation, or maybe it's something completely different, like marital troubles, or they just added another baby, or someone in the household has a special need and they're having a really hard time balancing it, or they're struggling with mental health issues or health issues or money issues. Like there's so many ways things can pile on and make you not feel like the mom you think you could be Mm -hmm. leading you to be losing it. Or it could just be the regular stresses of having, I think she said a two and a three and a half year old in that age range. That's like a really, those are hard, whatever, whether maybe it's two and four, but it's, it's a really hard time. And when I had kids that age, like losing it and feeling like not enough. And that was like a regular part of my experience, especially (laughs) with my Older too. So, um, I guess what I would say is like, it's even in, even in these abnormal times, it's still normal. Like what you're experiencing Mm -hmm. is still a normal part of motherhood. It just feels so much more, um, amplified right now because it's like, you're also picking up on the psychic, like vibes of all the people around you who are also not in a normal situation and have no outlet and are, and are stressed. And then being a teacher on top of that. And I, I just know from the teachers that I know, like the really good caring teachers um, that I am very close with are really taking on so much responsibility upon themselves for their students' mental health and education and um, just like caring for them. And that's a lot to take on. And it's too much, really. It's not really your job as a teacher to take that on. But you, but I know why you feel like you have to, and mm-hmm. there's no getting out of it. Like you care about them and you're a good teacher. So you have to, but like at the same time, it's like, we all know that you shouldn't have to, and it's unfair. So it's like, yeah. like taking on that weight of the world. I don't think there's any way to talk you out of it, Gina, um, either with your kids or with your students, I guess just to echo Sarah, I would say like both your children and your students will be okay. So mm-hmm. like, you know, it's, at some degree, there does have to be like that place where you can step back and say, we will get through this. Um, my little family, I can, you can only control what you can control. Mm-hmm. And that's your reaction at home with your, your kids to some degree. I mean, not expecting you to be perfect. And like, you can only do for your students what you could do for them. And that's, I think a really, that, I think that's been a really hard thing for teachers to 
realized this year. Like, yeah, they they have the ability in their classrooms to do the best job that they can, but there's not much they can do beyond that on a personal one to one level. And that's hard. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I can't solve it, but I'm just no. validating, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would agree. I also little plug for our Facebook group. Um, I don't remember if Gina is in it, but um, if you are someone who's on Facebook and you know, likes Facebook groups. I don't you feel like Megan, we, we see a post like this once a week, like somebody who just is owning their struggle. They're not looking for pity. They're not looking for advice. And they'll often say like, I'm just here to share what's really hard. And the, the comments and the support and the validation are so wonderful to see. And, and often the situation's really specific and, and people just, I love that people feel like they can just share and it doesn't feel like complaining or like I have it harder. Right. Um, so that's another place where there's a lot of this, um, just like sitting with each other's like sucky situations. Um, yeah. and I think that's really powerful right now. I think this pandemic has proven how much people need that. Um, so if anybody else just feels like it's really hard right now, that's one, one little place where I think it's safe and, um, supportive to talk about that. So, yeah. Okay. So we got a question from Caroline that I immediately thought of you when I listened, Megan. Um, so she's got two little boys, one, I think brand new. Um, so it's kind of a boy mom question and, uh, let's play Caroline's message now. Hi, Megan and Sarah. I am currently binge listening to your podcast during my maternity leave, and I am absolutely loving it. I have two boys, one three months old and one three years old. And I'm curious about Megan's thoughts on something given her plethora of older boy children. Uh, So like many of my girlfriends, I've stayed close to home. I see my parents all the time, and I'm realizing I have this deep down fear that since I have boys, they'll turn 18 and leave for college, make their own lives, move somewhere else, never come back. Um, irrational, I know. But when I think about my motivation to have a third kid, it really stems from, you know, either A, the possibility of having a girl who might come home more frequently, or B, just the mentality that having more kids would increase the frequency at which I'd see any of my kids once they're grown. So not the best reason to have a third. Um, Obviously, what I want to hear is that, you know, it just depends on the personality of the kid, whether they come home a lot or stay involved or stay close by, not necessarily their gender. Um, Because I think, you know, my mentality doesn't have roots in anything that makes too much sense. Um, So Megan, I'm just curious about your older boys. Are they involved? Do you still hang out with them? Or do you think that's you know, more typically a girl trait. Thanks so much. Oh, Caroline, this question just made me smile, um, like in a misty smile kind of way, because I, I just remember feeling so similarly. I had four boys before I had a girl. And honestly, by the time I had the girl, it was like, I was not expecting a girl by that point. <laughs> um, that was just like, oh, wait, what, what am I going to do with the girl? But I definitely fantasized or anticipated having one much sooner in the lineup. And part of that was this, this idea about, you know, um, helping my daughter plan a wedding, helping her get ready for prom, helping her pick out her first makeup, like all this stuff that I felt would make me closer to a daughter than maybe I would be to sons. And, um, I wouldn't say that by the end, that was like the reason I kept going by any means, mm-hmm. or even like my driver for wanting a girl, honestly, girls just had kind of cuter clothes back then. I think that's changed <laughs> a lot, but this was like the nineties when I first started having babies and like the boys clothes were not nearly as cute as the girls. Anyway, I will just say, I know it's so hard to imagine right now when you're so attached to these little boys, because no one loves their mama, like a little boy. Like, like they're, and little girls do too, obviously, but there's something kind of obsessive about boy mama love sometimes that it feels very special, but like fleeting. And I, and, and Sarah, you know, that I've talked to you over the years, like when my boy started getting like, like gangly and awkward and especially Owen, I remember one time texting you, I had just come in the door and Owen was like 10 or 11 and stretched out on the couch. And I just had this moment of looking at him with his like little boy face. And I started crying because I was like, I just know this isn't going to last. Like he's yeah, my and last he's your little last guy. Boy. Yeah. 
he's my last boy and he's sweet and all that. And I just knew that it was like on its way out. And now I look at him and he's tall and he's got like real man bone structure now. Like his face Mm -hmm. has changed. Um, All that to say, my feelings about missing them have changed. And that's something I never thought would when they were nursing and hanging on me and attached all the time and like snuggling all the time. I really thought I'm going to be like chasing, like following these boys to school one day and like not able to detach. And nature has a weird way of like making that just happen. Right. So like the things I might've worried about when they were little about being able to kind of let them go out in the world and be and separate from me, um, stopped being a thing. There's a, there's a phrase called soiling the nest Mm -hmm. that, um, it's not just a boy, boy, mom thing. It's any kid does, but they call that. It's like what birds do when Mm -hmm. it's time to kick a bird out of the nest. They poop in it like a whole bunch (laughs) until finally the mama bird is like, get out, like get out of the nest. And then like literally with their little bird feet, like kicks, the baby bird out. (laughs) And it truly does happen. Like at some point you will have teenage boys who you will want to send away. And I don't know how to say that without sounding like terribly unmotherly because I love all of my kids and and I love my son's tons. And when Isaac comes home um, on the weekends, I'm so happy to see him. And like, I'm like, I, he's just such a great addition to the family and I'm really glad to have him there. But it's also like the natural order of things told me it was time for him to go. Like it Mm -hmm. was just time for him to geo and, and they start, there's so much that we could go into. I don't have time for right now. Actually, it'd be interesting to do a whole episode on kids as they separate from parents and Mm -hmm. specifically teenage boys have like a, a really, um, like an easily, um, measured brainwave reaction to their mothers walking into the room, like where they experience extreme anxiety when their moms walk in the room at a certain age. And I really think that's because they have to, like they have to separate. So I guess all that to say, you might feel that way now and not later about the boys specifically. Mm -hmm. And also there's no guarantee you'll be closer with a girl than you would be with boys either. So there's like, there's like two things happening, right? You may end up, you may find that your boys are the ones who stay closer or that one boy does and others don't like, it's just, you just don't know. And I think there's a little bit of a fallacy or a myth that the daughters and mothers are the ones that keep this close bond because I've seen Mm -hmm. it play out both ways. And I can't say how it's going to play out because I have five kids and four of them are boys and the girl is very young, but I could easily see me staying just as close with one or two of my sons as um, with my daughter. And the other thing I will say, the benefit of having five is that I already know like, there's no way I'm going to stay close to all five. I might have mm-hmm. relationships with all five. I don't see myself being like, uh, super duper close to five humans because it's up to them. Like, it's yeah. not up to me. I might want it, but it may just not be in the cards. Like one of them is probably going to move across the country or move into to a different country, um, to a different country or, get married and start a family of their own. And maybe the wife doesn't want to come visit all the time. And like, I have to kind of learn to live with that. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that's gender-based or sex-based. I think that's just like circumstances and relationship that really you can't control. That was a very long winded way of saying, I hear you. Um, but I don't know that gender matters as much as maybe it feels like it does. Yes. Which was exactly what I was going to say. So I'll just echo that part. I mean, I think I'm in the, and it's not a unique position, but I have three kids and all three of them in some ways don't match up against gender stereotypes. And I think we're living through a time anyway, where a lot of our assumptions about gender are being challenged. And so of course, validating that feeling um, that Caroline has about wanting that closeness to stay and her own, her own perceptions of daughters and mothers staying close, like all of those, we take all of those assumptions and those experiences and they are valid. So not taking them away, but looking forward, I would agree with you, Megan, that kids' personalities and my three kids' personalities and how they do or don't track with what like big giant air quotes, like gender norms are. And then combined with, we're just living in a time when people, the, the world is both bigger and smaller. Like the the people's settling in their hometowns or leaving and then coming back. Like 
Even COVID has changed so much about family structures, how long kids stay in the nest, like where people decide to settle. I just think there's so much unpredictability. If if she's looking 15 to 20 years in the future, um, I think so much of it is not about, you know, the body parts that the babies are born yeah. with and more yes. about the relationships that she gets to develop for the next like decade plus and the person like the hardwired personalities of those kids and all of that. So um, now a separate kind of side thing here is wishing for a girl for other reasons or coming to terms with disappointment about like having all babies born of the same biological sex. And like we have a lot of that discussion, too, in our Facebook group of like, you know, just had an ultrasound like it's a boy again and I'm coming to terms with some disappointment that is also super valid and super common. But again, I don't know that it impacts future closeness or who's going to live right next door to mom and who's going to like fly the coop. So just echoing, I guess, and, and validating because I am the first one in line to tell you that the things I worry about or obsess about that are 20 years down the line don't necessarily make logical sense, but we still, we still fret over them. So we think about them. Yeah. And I think just to, just to add on to your point, Sarah, that um, that things are changing and the way we look at gender norms and roles are, are changing. Also, the way we look at relationships and communication has changed so much. And in 10 or 20 years, like maybe physical location won't really matter when it comes to the closeness of a relationship right. or how willing or able someone is to come over and have Sunday, you know, Sunday night dinner might not be the driving factor in how close you feel to them. And, and also just to like wrap all of that up. One thing I always try to remember, and this is someone who, I mean, I lost my mom really young and my dad pretty young. Like I was 22 when my mom died, 32 when my dad died. And I look back and think like, how would I feel as a parent if I thought, um, the relationship that I had in, in the future with my kids was all that mattered. Like what I'm doing now counts, I guess is what I mean mm -hmm. by that. And like, the relationship you have now, is, it counts, even if later you might only see one of your sons quarterly or once a year mm -hmm. or once every two years, like everything that's happening now still matters and will seem, it will seem less present, like, and less like, um, urgent to have that every minute closeness. It, I, I just, it's hard to explain it because when you've got the little ones, you think you're always going to feel that intensity, but like a lot of that is biological. It's hormonal. Yeah. Like it's how we stay bonded and keep our kids alive. And then that's why people who are retired can travel the country and not think yeah. or the world and really not worry about what their kids are doing. Yeah. Cause like you've, you've moved on. You've, you realize you did your job and now the relationship you have can be different. And, um, I think that's like an important place that you have to get to, but it's hard to even imagine getting there. Well, that's why I think it was really helpful to hear you talk about the teenage years as a as a very natural biological and and necessary separation. That it's not like the the closeness you feel now with a three year old is going to be severed in a day. It's going to right. be a gradual and a natural separation. So I like that. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our last question, which actually I found in our Instagram and it was sent in quite a while ago. So for those of you who've sent us questions, you never know. Sometimes we dig up an older one um, and we weren't able to get to it and then it resurfaces. So Mickey sent this in um, on Instagram and she says, sorry, it's not a voice recording. My allergies are really bad. And so I'm laughing because we, we often pressure you all to leave us voicemails because we do right. so like hearing your voices. But you can always send us uh, your questions in an email or Instagram. Um, so Mickey says, my question is, how do I teach and encourage kids to have some kitchen independence? I have a six and a half year old boy whom I keep trying to encourage to microwave his own pancakes or make his own sandwiches, but I met with a lot of reluctance and even what seems to be a little bit of anxiety about the issue from him. Um, so I thought this would be a fun question to wrap up on because I feel like I have a little success story of my own in this area. So Reed is, uh, he'll be 11 in a couple months and he is my least naturally inclined to be independent about anything. Like he, I have to really like force life skills on him in the way mm. that, um, both Allegra and Violet kind of have a net. Well, Violet has like an overdrive for independence. So for her, it's like reigning in and Allegra, it's always been like 
kind of right on target of when she's interested in doing things by themselves. But first of all, just validating that not all kids have the same desire for life skills and independence. Like you'd think it's like, oh, I get to, you know, chop up vegetables by myself or I get to make my own lunch. Like, that's cool. I'm a big kid. Yes. Some kids think that way and some kids do not care and would just as soon have mom make their pancakes until they're 32. Um, but Reed recently has really taken a lot of initiative in this area. And I just think like he's a slightly later bloomer on some life skills, but he's gotten a lot better with like expectations that we have in the kitchen around the table, like even like little chores and stuff. He just, it seems like it's finally clicking. So just one vote for like some kids just are ready later and six and a half is still pretty young. I think for, for to be, um, internally motivated for kitchen independence, which brings me to my second tip, which is more about anytime I want my kids to like develop a life skill, I have to sweeten the pot a little bit or remove the option of me doing it for, for them. So often it's something like dessert. Like I think I posted on our Instagram the other day is the kids were like, what's for dessert? I'm like, Oh, we don't have any, I guess you guys have to bake it yourself if you want something sweet. And like they will. So if it's something where the option is to do it myself or not have it, you might find that his um, that his desire increases a little bit. If the option is I do it or mom does it, he just may not care enough. Um, And then finally, on the anxiety note, I do think that that is we talked earlier in this episode about perfectionist kids or, you know, anxious kids. And that very well may be a part of it. So you may just have to, you know, have fun in the kitchen by doing things together and giving him small jobs. Um, rather than just like, I could see how if you're six and a half and mom usually microwaves your pancakes or makes your sandwich and now it's your turn, it can, it could feel overwhelming all at once. So maybe starting small or working on a cooking project together or having it be, um, having it be like an option, but he doesn't have to like, would you like to do it yourself? Or would you like me to do it this time? I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. I have also set deadlines before for my kids. And I've said things that like, when you enter sixth grade, you make your own lunch period. That's the house rule. So like, I've done it a bunch of different ways, but I think I mostly got excited about this question because I feel like my almost 11 year old finally, it's not so much the skills. It's like, he finally (laughs) has made the cognitive connection between like his efficacy in, in household management areas. Like I am capable of doing this. And if I wanted a sandwich, I could make it. It's like before he had this giant academic brain and this like real absent-minded professor personality where it's like, come on, buddy. Like, you know how to get yourself a glass of water. Like what is going on? Just do it. Yes. I feel like we've had a breakthrough. Well, that's great. And two of the points that you made, Sarah, both were points I would have made as well. Um, One of them is that it's not enough for them to be able, they have to want to. And, and if the, if the, you made the, you know, um, the comment about the cupcakes and like, you know, making food or making treats for yourself as a kid is probably always going to be prioritized or just a little more appealing than like making a sandwich. Because if you don't eat the sandwich, there's enough other sandwich like things that like, that scratch that same itch that are a lot easier. And believe me, six and a half is not the end. Like that's not the upper limit of ages where kids will find almost <laughs> any way of getting out of literally taking two pieces of bread and putting meat in the middle. Like they will really go out of their way to find something easier, including standing in front of the fridge with it open going like, well, what is there to eat? And like, well, you see there's bread and there's meat and there's cheese and there's mustard and there's mayonnaise. Right. I know. But like, what is, what is the, do you have food though? I'm like, well, that is food. Yeah. But do you have anything that's already made? So, I mean, I have kids all over the place and they're all capable. They can all, they can all scramble an egg. They can all make cookies. They can all make basic food to keep themselves alive. But even at the ages that they are, some of them really won't choose to go out of their way to do anything besides open a package if they can all get it all get away with it. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm just thinking about like six and a half, like he just might not care enough. Like it, right. it, it's reluctance because maybe he's thinking, well, if I just wait long enough, mom will do it. Or if I just wait long enough, it'll be dinner. Right. Or if I just scrounge in the pantry, I'll find some crackers. And that sounds good. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like the effort involved. Yeah. Um, to them, I don't think is always worth the outcome. 
Which brings me to the other point, which is that at six and a half, I, I try to think of this as like, like, where does that compare in my, um, like my kitchen skills development? And I kind of feel like at six and a half, asking me to like microwave a pancake would have felt like it felt to me at 32, asking me to like roast a chicken and make a sauce. Mm-hmm. It wasn't outside of my abilities. I could do it, but there was a lot of thinking and it was outside my comfort level. And I had to really be in the mood to do it. So mm-hmm. there's like, it seems really simple to us because it's a microwave. We've been doing it forever or making a sandwich, whatever, who cares? But like, re- like if you really kind of put it on a, like if you kind of yeah. compare it to like where, what kind of requests someone could make of you that might stress you out a little bit, it seems then it starts to make more sense. Like, oh yeah, yeah to a six-year-old who maybe wasn't even tall enough to reach the microwave last year, um, how does that feel? Or like having to assemble everything in the right order and find everything and open it. Like why, like just to think about where that anxiety or just a little overwhelm. Yeah. It's probably more overwhelm than anxiety. They're not going to yeah. blow anything up making a sandwich, but there's that anxiety of doing it right. Having all the pieces, making sure it tastes good in the end. Um, so it's a lot. And I think that it's very natural for that to happen. And I, at that, I, nothing I just gave was anything like advice. Sorry. I didn't give any no. tips, but it was just, I guess, normalizing. So. I think you told me one time on this podcast, like probably three or four years ago when I was feeling like a little behind the eight ball with things like, like chores and really contributing to the household. And you just like really removed. So I know there's a lot of arguments for getting very young kids involved in chores and I didn't do a very good job of it. And I think if you are, if you are focusing on that, it's great. It's not like wasted effort or anything, but I think there's more time than sometimes we think. Yes. Um, uh-huh. Cause we get told like they, they have to know how to do a load of laundry and make a scrambled egg. And like, sometimes the overachievers among us can bring that age level way down and forget that like there's a full six years of learning between the ages of like 12 and 18, for example. And the growth I've seen in my kids in the preteen years in things like life skills, chores, household contributions, like it's a there you might at six and a half, you might just be on the precipice of just starting to be able to expect kitchen independence. And you have so much time ahead of you. So you really helped me reframe that when my kids were like, I want to say the the older two were like eight and 10 maybe. And thinking like, Oh my gosh, like they don't do, they don't even empty the dishwasher. And they are, you know, people out there whose five-year-olds are regularly emptying the dishwasher. And I really did feel behind the eight ball. And you just, you were like, nah, you're just barely, you're really barely getting into the phase where they're really going to be helpful. So, and if they're 16, you still got time. Like you always have time. There's never like any point where it's too late to help your kids learn a new skill or fix something that you're right. working on. Like you, that's, we're all work in progress. Yep. Um, I wanted totally. to share too, because I think it really does align with the chores, with the chore conversation overall. This is like anything where it's like teaching skills. The kid doesn't have any reason to want to learn. Like, <laughs> yeah. Let's put it in that bucket, right? Chores. The kid, why would the kid want to learn how to do chores? That doesn't right. behoove them. We have right. to like remind them that they have to, right? And same thing with making their own food. Um, it's that it's a practice. It's, it's going to be like a thing you break down into 17 steps and you have to repeat it and repeat it and train and train. And I was reminded of a friend of mine. I don't have any memory of this, um, but was telling me about a a story she remembered where I was nursing Clara and it was, uh, Isaac. So Isaac, I think when I was nursing Clara, Isaac would have been seven or eight, say, and he came to me and said, I want a sandwich. And I said, okay, well, I can't get up and make you a sandwich right now. And I was like, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the kitchen and you're going to get bread. And he's like, uh-huh. And so he ran and then he came back. He's like, now what? And I was like, okay, uh-huh. now you're going to get out the meat and you're going to put turkey, like two pieces of turkey and a piece of ham. Cause that's how I knew he liked it. Right. Uh-huh. He's like, yeah, okay. Of course. And he went and did that. And then he came back and I was like, okay, now you're going to go get the mayonnaise out. And like, I had to break the whole thing down and he was just running back and forth, like so cute. being fed one step at a time. <laughs> But that's how I read recipes. Like if I read a recipe, I have to go back. And even now I'm a pretty proficient cook and I can read. I've been able to read for a long time, (laughs) a few decades now. And I still have to go back and reread every step seven times. Like I don't pick up a recipe and get it. I have to go back and go, wait, what did I do? Did I forget that step? And 
Um, it is overwhelming. It's just that I've learned to deal with the overwhelm because I've had enough, I have enough experience under my belt that I know if I mess it up, it's probably not beyond help, right? Like yeah. usually you can go back and fix it. Uh, so I don't know. That's just to say, like, I don't know that, um, Mickey used the word encouragement and I think encouraging is great, but there's also that training and teaching yeah. part of it that it just, it takes a while. So like, okay. if you think you've already done enough, you might just need to do more. I totally agree. And now that I'm now I have one more thing to say about this. And this is much more on the perf- the parents being performative about how independent their kids are about anything. And this is like probably exacerbated in COVID because we were all stuck at home. So everyone's sharing on social like, you know, the cake their kid baked or the embroidery they did right. or the <laughs> like whatever crazy hobbies their kids got into. And I Mickey didn't say that that's where she's been influenced, but I do think it's easy to see other people's kids in their most autonomous state and assume that that kid is like a a super kid. Um, And I just like I will use the example of I have kids who are way ahead in proficiency in some areas and then like can't ride a bike or like Mm -hmm. can't, you know, like don't know how to do something relatively simple that other families would have completely like normalized by then. So just a reminder that like you may be seeing six and a half year olds whipping up their own lunch, but you're not seeing what that same six and a half year old is struggling with or what else is going on in that family. So just a reminder that these benchmarks by age um, can get very warped when we're seeing the most accomplished of people's families and um, somehow conflating that with average or normal or typical or recommended. Yeah, that is a really, really good point. No, like, I promise you, nobody's kids are doing all of it proficiently all the time. Right. And right. I'm also not posting pictures of my kids refusing to open the fridge and make a sandwich. <laughs> I think you should, though. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I should totally do that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you everybody who sent in questions for today. We, if you're listening to this, the week it drops, we have a little bit more time, just a little teeny bit more time to get a question in for next week's episode. Um, and then you can always send them in and they might make it into next, the next time we do this, which will be about three months from now. So you can use SpeakPipe, which is speakpipe.com slash the mom hour is a really easy way to leave us a voicemail, or you can record your own voice and email that to us at hello at the mom hour.com. Or you can just send us an email um, with your question. And yeah, just a reminder that our survey, I know we talked about it earlier, but um, that our survey is up at the momhour.com slash survey. And all of those links are in the show notes as well. Yeah. And I guess, Sarah, it's going to be a whole week until our next episode. It feels so strange because I feel like I we've had like a lot of content in the last month. I, I know that only happens like once a month, probably now where you have to go Tuesday to Tuesday with nothing in between. So there's lots to catch up on. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely go back because I mean, unless you've been like a super um, eager beaver listener, when I know we have some that are like really good about being on top of it, you probably missed one or two things. So yeah, go back and listen and then we'll be back in a week. Talk to you then. The Mom Hour is supported by partners like Erica. Erica is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug when they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. Erica was built by a dad of three boys who saw that teens themselves were really becoming self-aware to the risks of social media, and he wanted to help them self-regulate. Erica works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Hey everyone, Sarah here. Megan and I would absolutely love it if you hit pause right now, right where you're listening and left the Mom Hour a rating and review. If our show has helped you feel a little more confident as a mom or a little less alone, that's one of the absolute biggest ways you can thank us. And it really takes about 30 seconds. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, just navigate to the Mom Hours show listing. So not the episode you're listening to right now, but the kind of landing area for our show as a whole. And then scroll down to leave a rating or review. Thank you so much.